Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Micah chapter 5. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, chances are you don't know where the book of Micah is. It's a small book nestled towards the end or the back third of, of the Old Testament. But the great thing about the Bibles that we're reading is that every Bible comes with a table of contents. And so if you have, are unfamiliar with the Bible, utilize that resource to navigate this, this big book with lots of good stuff in it. And we're going to find our way to Micah chapter 5. Now, Micah is found in a stretch of books known as the Minor Prophets. Now, don't let that word minor fool you because the word minor doesn't speak to this book's significance. Instead, the word minor is a reference to the length of the book or the quantity of words that are found in the book. And so Micah is a lot shorter than those who are referred to as major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So when we refer to Micah as a minor prophet, it's not a knock on his significance. In fact, this book is as much of God's word as is the gospel of John. And there is some stuff in here for us as we continue our celebration and observation of, of the Advent season. So Micah chapter 5. I am a bit concerned that life in a 5G society may hinder our appreciation of passages such as the one we're looking at today. You know, we live in a society that focuses on providing instant gratification to all of our needs and to all of our desires and Prime Now shipping can get food and drinks delivered to us in under two hours, right? We can get food from our favorite restaurants in that same amount of time from DoorDash and Caviar and other resources. We, we have a world of entertainment at the push of a button. We can shop the globe searching for our heart's desires in minutes. So much of life, so much of life in a 5G society is instant and temporal, and because of that, we tend to struggle with what may seem to be distant and yet eternal. And what you're going to find in this passage is that God is making promises to a generation of his people that are not fulfilled in, his lifetime, in their lifetime. Yet there's an expectation when you consider the passage and the context that, that in which it was written and the people in whom it is addressing, there's an expectation that these promises would somehow provide God's people with peace under pressure, a peace that would transcend all understanding, one that would guard their hearts and their minds as they are promises anticipating the coming Messiah or anticipating King Jesus. And so notice the rising pressure right off the bat in verse 1. We're cued into the fact that, that Israel is under attack. And then we're also told that there was a siege against God's people in this moment. Now, historically, it's not entirely clear as to what siege is being referred to because Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, found themselves under siege uh, multiple times by multiple forces. It's possible that this attack, this external pressure that God is feeling is coming from uh, Sennacherib's Assyrian army in 701 B.C., but then a case could also be made that this besiegement is one that came under King Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonian Neo army that took place towards the, the latter half or the first half of the 6th century BC, around 588, 586, around there. But whatever the case may be, I think it's significant that this pressure 
that God's people is under is an external pressure as they are being sieged. Now, siege warfare is a military tactic that's been used by forces for thousands of years. It's a tactic, of course, where an opposing force will surround a city and then with great patience, they would apply pressure on the city that they're trying to take by cutting the city off from essential resources and over time just bankrupting people's morale so that hopefully that city would one day surrender to the opposing forces. Now you think about this dynamic, God's people under siege in this moment, surrounded, being cut off from resources. An army that is incredibly patient in the in applying pressure upon them, hoping that they would surrender and give up territory to them. You just think about that dynamic, and I can't help, I can't help but think about how siege warfare is a tactic in spiritual warfare as well. Now, of course, as God's people living today, we are not a nation state that's fending off warrior forces like the people of Israel were in that day. But we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is against flesh, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And I can't help but think about how patient our enemy is in his efforts to apply pressure to our lives. Applying pressure with great patience in hopes that you and I would surrender. In hopes that you and I would give up territory to him so that he might influence us in life-depleting, life-destroying kinds of ways. And with great patience, our enemy leverages circumstances and events to apply such pressure as he surrounds us and, and besieges us in a variety of ways. Perhaps this is what some of you are experiencing right now as you, you've been cut off. You've been cut off from ordinary rhythms of life. You are enduring a pandemic and, and the enemy is just turning the screws on you, applying pressure, intensifying attacks so that hopefully you might bail on your faith, so that hopefully you might come to a point where you turn your back on the promises of God, believing that they will not be fulfilled as scriptures declare they will. Now, this was certainly the temptation the people of Israel were facing in this moment as, as they were being surrounded by opposing forces and their city was under siege and they were being tempted to turn their back on the promises of God and surrender to the encroaching enemy. And they had reason to do so because the external pressure that God's people was feeling was giving way to an internal pressure that was rising within them as the people were losing hope. They were losing peace. They were losing perspective. You see this in verse 1, when this internal pressure arises, as we're told that that the enemies struck the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Now, that's a euphemism for humiliation. That's a euphemism for the ruler of Israel in that moment being overtaken, being beaten, being struck down and humiliated. Now, historically, there was a moment when King Zedekiah, who was the last king of Judah, when he was quite literally struck in the face with a rod and, and that strike would strike him blind as he would lose his vision and he proved to be in that moment an incapable ruler, one who could not carry God's people through the attack that they were 
facing. And so he was a ruler that got knocked down and couldn't get back up. You know, one of the things that can be exposed during times of besiegement, when pressure is rising, one of the things that can be exposed, and I pray that by God's grace, these would be exposed, is whether or not we have been trusting in and relying upon incapable rulers. Rulers who are not capable of leading us through attack. Rulers that cannot carry us through challenge and tough circumstances. We see in moments like these how incapable so many things are of of helping us out when we're struggling. So many alternative rulers that we're putting our faith in, whether those rulers be our finances, or those rulers be our career, or those rulers be a relationship, or those rulers be X, Y, or Z. The, The fragility of these incapable rulers are exposed when the pressure begins to rise in our lives. Now, keep in mind that the pressure God's people is facing in this story, it is the result of God's discipline upon them because they turned their backs on him prior to this moment. And they were no longer exercising faith in him and and upholding their end of the relationship of the covenant that was forged between God's people and God himself. And they were failing at that. And so these armies that were coming against God's people were an expression of, of judgment. But understand that God's judgment is intended when it is experienced like this. It's designed by God to carry us to salvation. And one of the ways we find salvation through judgment is by seeing just how frail and fragile alternative rulers to our lives actually are. When the pressure begins to rise and all of these things we've been trusting in begin to crumble and fall to the ground, when they are humiliated as being incapable of carrying us through life in a fallen world, when that happens, that is grace. There's so much grace in what is happening, even in the midst of the pressure that God's people is feeling in this moment. And there is so much grace that that is at work in our lives, even now in the face of so much pressure that we are experiencing and that we are enduring. So you look at the text and we find that as pressure is rising, then there's this breakthrough in verse two where the prophet Micah, this spokesperson for God, begins to bring God's promises to bear on Israel's situation and promises of a coming ruler who's gonna right every wrong, a coming ruler who's going to be the source of peace and security that God's people need, Micah begins to call attention to that as he speaks to this remarkable promise in verse 2. And he does so by introducing us to a little town known as Bethlehem. Now, you can't get too far into the Advent season before thinking about Bethlehem. Many Christmas songs celebrate this location because of what it means for God's promises and what it means for God's provision of a king and a ruler and a savior. And and so verse 2 We're cued into this dynamic of Bethlehem because we know that it is from Bethlehem that the king will come. And this is the heart of the promise that Micah is bringing to bear on the people's situation, referring to Bethlehem, this this town that was small among all the clans of Judah. He says, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Now, throughout the history of God's people, Bethlehem has been associated with with the greatest king in their history. King David was born in Bethlehem. 
And then the prophets would tell us that one greater than David, the the eternal son of David, would come forth from Bethlehem too. And so you have this moment in Micah 2 where we're reminded of this. Now, if you study much of the Old Testament, understand that it's not just Christians who point to this passage and say, yeah, this passage is speaking of the Messiah that God's going to send to right every wrong. Jewish scholars believe this too. This is an undisputed text that this passage is a messianic passage. But we know as Christians that the Messiah, the one that this passage speaks to, this promise was fulfilled one day when Jesus was born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. It was so common and widespread that this small town would be, would be the place where the Messiah would come from, that even King Herod in Jesus' day affirmed it. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, there's this moment where Micah 2 is quoted and, and just listen to this expectation and the assumption that the king is coming from Bethlehem. It says in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of King Herod, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at the rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. And here it is, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written by the prophet, that is, the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. I love the note of affirmation. The note of affirmation of Bethlehem, the smallest of the tribes of Judah, this town that was often overlooked. And although, yes, it gave birth to King David, but people quickly bypassed Bethlehem for Jerusalem. But yet notice what the prophet is saying. Even though you are small, and to some you might be considered insignificant in the ordinary rhythms of life, but understand that the most significant person to ever come into this world will be born in your district, will come from you. What Bethlehem tells us is that Bethlehem says that no person is so small that God can't see them. That no person is so small that the king won't come for them. Bethlehem assures us that if we are considered to be the least of these in this world, we might be overlooked and bypassed for bigger and better people for many reasons. Bethlehem tells us that no person is too small or insignificant that God doesn't see them, and no person is too small or insignificant that the king isn't coming for them. And so let your heart be encouraged by the promise that the king will come, and he's coming for sinners and sufferers like you and me. And it's a remarkable thing to get to this realization of saying, the king is coming not in response to my bigness, not in response to my significance, not in response to my greatness. The king is coming purely by the grace of God. When that message registers, we will then be able to sing with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest who did not overlook me, who did not miss me in the grand scheme of things. The God who sees me and who sent the king for me. No person is too small or insignificant to miss out on all that the king will bring when he comes. 
But then you notice what, the, what is said about the king next. It refers to his origin being from antiquity and from ancient times. Now, this, again, is a reminder that the king we're talking about isn't Zedekiah, the king who was humiliated, who was knocked down and didn't get back up. The king we're talking about here isn't King David, who died and didn't rise again. We're not talking about any Old Testament king in this moment because his origin is from antiquity. He's from ancient times. We're talking about the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and was born in a manger. We're talking about the infinite becoming a, an infant, an infant. That's what we're talking about. Now, talk about a complicated birthday, right? Jesus coming from ancient times. Jesus, the God, Son of God, the eternal Son of God, being born in time and space in a manger. Just a, every application Jesus would fill out for the rest of his life had to give a headache. Because every application would call for his age or call for his birthday, and he'd get to that point and think, oh, what am I supposed to put down here, right? On my mama's side, I'm, I'm 30 years old, but on my dad's side, I'm eternal, right? I'm from ancient times. I am from antiquity. I am the, the one who is fully God and fully human. I am the remarkable king who has come into the world to do things that nobody else can do. And so this king who will come will come from Bethlehem, and he will be the God-man. And, and when he comes, understand that we're also told here that the king will conquer. You look down at verse 4, and we're told that the king will conquer, for he will stand and shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God, that he's going to come to conquer. He's, and notice in verse 4 that it says he's going to stand. I love this about the king. I love this about Jesus. Jesus is not the type of king who sits back in a hammock and allowing servants to fan him with palm branches and feed him grapes. He's not lying down. He's not sitting back. He's not waiting for you to do something worthy of him standing and coming to you and coming for you. No, Jesus is going to take the initiative. He's going to stand. He's going to work on behalf of his people. We know that the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. The king will stand but not only will he stand, he will shepherd. This beautiful image of what it means to be a leader and a ruler of God's people. As shepherds would protect God's people and feed God's people and, and they would guide God's people through the world that is and route to the world that is to come. The image of the shepherd was the keynote image of leadership among God's people all throughout the Old Testament and it continues to be a keynote image for leadership in the church today. This is why elders and pastors are referred to as shepherds, not because we are capital S shepherds, but because we are small S shepherds who are to be led by Jesus as we seek to lead others to follow Jesus. And so Jesus here is the shepherd of God's people, and he would identify with this. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus would make it very clear that he is the good shepherd who came to give his life for the sheep. What makes Jesus good isn't the fact that he was born in a manger in a small town of Bethlehem. What makes Jesus good isn't simply the things that he taught us about what it means to forgive each other and to help those who are marginalized in the least of these in society, as wonderful as those things are. And they do point to Jesus's goodness, but what makes Jesus the good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, is the fact that Jesus would give his life for sinners and sufferers like you and me, that he would conquer not by 
invading the world with great power. He would conquer by stepping into the world to serve you and me by going to the cross and dying for our sins. This is how Jesus conquers sin. This is how Jesus conquers Satan. This is how Jesus conquers our greatest enemy in death. For we know that when Jesus died, death for him died too which means after Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was placed in the tomb three days later, he didn't stay there. This sets him apart from David. This sets him apart from Zedekiah, that although Jesus was struck down, he got back up. Although he was beat down, he stood back up because he was resurrected from the grave. And because of this, Jesus will stand. He will shepherd. He will secure salvation for all of his people. You keep reading in verse 4, and it says that he, that they, that is people like you and me, will live securely for then his, Jesus' greatness, will extend to the ends of the earth. That he will subdue every hostile force that makes life miserable for us right now. That he's going to subdue every nation, every tribe, every tongue. There's coming a day when every knee on earth shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that this one who was born in a manger and was crucified on the cross only to rise again, there's coming a day when everyone's going to acknowledge that. And no one's going to be able to hide from the reality that Jesus is who he is and that he came to do the things that he came to do. And so he's going to secure a life for us by conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death forever. But not only is he going to conquer, the king is going to calm. You keep reading in verse 5a, and I would encourage you to circle this one, put stars around it. Let this be your meditation for the rest of the week. Jesus will be their peace. That he will be their peace. That the king is going to calm all things for us. Now, there was an audience that was told one time to, to close your eyes and to think about peace. Just imagine what peace is like and the audience cooperated. Everyone closed their eyes and began to think about peace. And then the facilitator said, okay, now open your eyes and, and tell me what you saw. What, what images popped into, popped into your mind? One person described a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Another person spoke of snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape. Then another one described a scene of uh, just this beautiful, serene lake and after everyone just kind of described their mental picture of what peace is for them, there was one thing common in them all. <laughs> there was no people in them. And so the facilitator made that observation. He said, isn't it interesting? When asked to imagine peace, the first thing we do is to eliminate everyone else. But do you see what's being said in this passage? Do you hear how peace is coming to us? That peace for the follower of Jesus isn't found in a place. Peace for us is found in a person. It's found in the presence of the one who came for us to, to conquer everything on our behalf. That our peace is found in the person of Jesus himself. He will be our peace. And the word peace there is the Hebrew word for shalom, which speaks to something far greater than just the cessation of hostilities and conflict. 
Because those things can cease, and yet there still not be peace in terms of a proactive, loving posture towards those you're in relationship with. Well, Jesus is our shalom. He is our peace. He came not just to cease hostilities between us and God and between us and each other. He came to fill that void with love and grace and mercy and kindness. He came to enrich shalom in our lives so that we might be proactive producers of flourishing livelihood for all that we come in contact with. This is what happens when Jesus becomes our peace. He himself is our peace. Now, Stephen referred to this, the moment Jesus was hanging with his disciples, and they were going throughout Galilee, ministering to different people, and they came to the point to the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And he said, that's what's going to happen. We're going to the other side. So they got in the boat, and they began to move in that direction. But before they reached the other side, a storm kicked up. And the wind began to blow and the rain began to fall and the waves began to beat against the side of the boat so intensely that the disciples became fearful for their livelihood. They were afraid and they began to look around the boat. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And then it turned out Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the boat. He was asleep in the boat while all this was raging and the disciples were growing frustrated. There was not much peace in their lives in that moment. And I remember a mentor of mine asked me the question, what do you do with a sleeping Jesus? What do you do when there's so much pressure surrounding you and, and Jesus seems to be asleep in the boat? What do you do with a sleeping Jesus? And then before I could get an answer out, he looked at me and said, just be thankful he's in the boat. Just be thankful he's in the boat. If he's in the boat, you're going to get to the destination. If he's in the boat, you are going to move through the storm and arrive at the other side. And so we want to consider this, recognizing that we as followers of Jesus in the world that is, who are facing all kinds of external and internal pressures, that we will arrive at our destination, that the promises of God will be fulfilled. And that brings us to the required perspective that we must hold. That as we think about these dynamics in our lives right now, there is a perspective that is required for each of us, and it's hinted at there in verse 3. There's this sneaky little verse in verse 3 that says, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the rulers, brothers, will return to the people of Israel. Now verse 3 speaks of this regathering of God's people, that the people are going to be in that day uh, overtaken, overcome. They're going to be taken to exi into exile at some point in time. And, but then verse 3 speaks to an ingathering of, of God's people. Now notice that the passage doesn't speak to the timeline. It doesn't say when anything is going to go down. It doesn't say when any of this is going to happen. All it says is what's going to happen, that the Messiah is coming, and at some point in time, God's people will be gathered. The ruler's brothers will be brought back around him, and they will come to know him as the Savior. One of the things you've got to understand when looking at a passage like this is that timing is vague. Timing in the prophets is vague. So there are lots of things that this passage kind of alludes to and could potentially refer to. You have the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem in 701. About 120 some odd years later, Babylon conquered Judah and brought God's people into exile. And at some point in time after that, there was a remnant of God's people that was regathered in Jerusalem, but they did not regather around the ruler as verse 3 is 
saying will be. And then about 700 years after this passage was written, you have the birth of Jesus, the king coming into the world, being born in Bethlehem. But then you look at verse 4, and you have this reference to a universal rule where his greatness is known everywhere. And it's clear today that that hasn't been fulfilled, that his universal rule of the whole earth is still anxiously awaited. So here's one of the things you got to consider as you look at a passage like this and other passages of prophecy, that prophecy in the Old Testament is fulfilled until it is filled full. It is fulfilled until it is filled full. It's kind of like pouring a glass of water where you are filling that glass of water and it is fulfilling until it is filled full. God's word is a lot like that. This is why God's the promises of God can have a couple of manifestations throughout human history and a couple of moments when, when they are fulfilled, but they are being fulfilled until they are filled full. And so what does this mean about the required perspective? Well, it means that you and I must take the long view. We must look not for the immediate fulfillment of God's promises per se. We want to look for the eternal fulfillment of God's promises and put our faith in the eternal fulfillment of God's promises to us and all that he's going to do for us. And one of the ways that you can do that is by looking at the image, circle that word labor, that the word labor is used here. And it's another image that pops up in other places in the New Testament, referring to what God's going to do when all is said and done and describing creation even as being in labor, anticipating the birth. And, and I know from just watching my wife give birth to three kids that labor brings pressure. That there's a lot of pressure involved in that process. But that pressure is endured because soon life is going to burst forth. And that pressure will produce life. And that's what I put my hope in when watching my wife struggle in labor in the hospital. I believe that that pressure would produce life. And when we think about the promises of God, God's promises assure us that pressure produces life. That one day, the labor pains of struggling through life in a fallen world is going to give way to life eternal with Jesus. We know this because Romans chapter 8, verse 22 tells us, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, here's the image again, with labor pains until now. And then you keep reading in Romans chapter 8, and it refers to how we are groaning with labor pains until now, waiting for the day when all is made right. And God makes all things new, and all of creation is liberated to be all that God intends for us to be, and to do all the things that God intends for us to do as we dwell with Him forever and always. And so the required perspective we need to hold is that we don't know when God's promises will be fully realized. But we do know because the king has come and the king has promised to come again, we do know that they've been fully secured by Jesus. That we bank our hope on the promises of God because Jesus has lived and died and rose again. He is the king who wasn't conquered. He is the king who conquered death. And so we trust in him and we take the long view because we can face our current pressures with honesty. We can respond to them the way Israel responded time and time again in the Old Testament by crying out to God and expressing our anguish and, and appealing to God time and time again through prayer and petitions. And 
And we can face pressure honestly without losing sight of God's long-term plans to fulfill all of his promises for his people. And so even though all of God's promises might not be realized in our lifetime, we live by faith. And we allow that faith to provide us with peace under pressure. We allow the certainty of God's promises being fulfilled to calm our souls in the midst of the storm or in the midst of being besieged, in the midst of external and internal pressures. So we look to Jesus to be our peace who holds us together when everything else is threatening to fall apart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to look to Jesus to be our peace? God, we thank you for being faithful to fulfill all of your promises. And I pray that you would help us not to be so short-sighted that we pull up from our faith prematurely. Help us not to be so short-sighted that we fail to trust in your promises in the midst of pressure so that we are then overcome by those pressures. I pray that your grace would abound so that our, the eyes of our faith may be fixed on Jesus and that we would look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, trusting him all the days of our lives as we await the full realization and the full experience of your promises being realized. God, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name.